So what I want to do today, John, is I think as a, a nice companion to the Built to Sell book would be learning more about your story. Because obviously built to sell is the business fable. And then there's the tips at the end, right? Without the story, just kind of a summary of the tips. So I think a nice companion will be learning more about you. And then I have some follow-up questions from the book. How's that sound? That sounds fine. Yeah, happy to do it. Great. Well, John Warlow, thanks so much for being here. And I am happy to welcome you onto the show. I want to point out Built to Sell. Get the book. I've got it right here. Really my favorite business book or one of my, I would say my top two favorite business books in the world. I think maybe the other one is The E-Myth. Uh, I think they kind of dovetail nicely, right? So Built to Sell, you have to get that book. If you run a business of any kind, you should probably get that book. Built to Sell Radio, which honestly, John, as much as I love the book, I actually haven't listened to Built to Sell Radio yet. And I've been meaning to for at least the past eight weeks, and I just haven't done it. I don't know. Maybe I forgot to subscribe and it doesn't show up on my homepage or whatever, but I've got to make a better, a concerted effort to do that. I've heard it's very good. And someone that I know, he had me on his podcast a long time ago. I think Colin is your producer. He's a good guy. I like him. I, he, when I was on his show, that was like my favorite podcast interview I've ever done. He knows what <laughs> he's doing. Great. That's great. Yeah, Daily Grind. It's awesome. Yeah. So John Warlow is, of course, the author of this great book, Built to Sell, Creating a Business That Can Thrive Without You. He's built and sold numerous businesses. I really want to learn more about him today. And that's what we are going to do. So, John, without further ado, let's dive right in. Start learning more about who you are. So my first question for you is, what did you want to do growing up? I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I think I always uh, aspired to have my own company. I, I actually also was really intrigued by media. So at one point, I wanted to be a, C, a 60 Minutes interviewer. Mm. I don't know if you have the old... 60 minutes routine where you'd, you'd kind of go into a car dealership that was like rolling back odometers on people's cars and try to sell used cars for more than they're probably worth. I always found it really fascinating to be sort of a, a kind of a journalist and an interviewer. And, and it's been a, a common theme throughout my life. I, you mentioned Built Cell Radio. I interview entrepreneurs about their exit and I've been doing it for seven years. And so it's all kind of come full circle in a way. Yeah. Very much doing what you wanted to do within this realm that of life that you've mastered, which is kind of selling businesses. Yeah. I mean, it is a general, like a theme throughout the work that we do now. It's very much about how do you build a company that has value to somebody else. So we talk about building, accelerating, and ultimately harvesting the value of a company. It's funny. We you know, we as entrepreneurs, I think, are indoctrinated to some extent by the media and by pop culture that growing the size of your company, revenue, number of employees is the ultimate sort of yeah. badge of value, badge of honor. And, and I think that's just wrong. I, I think yeah. revenue is kind of vanity and, and value is sanity. And so we talk more about 
it's one thing to grow your revenue. That's great. But if it's all dependent on you or one customer, that's not a transferable business. That's just a job that is masquerading as a business. What entrepreneurs need to think about and what acquirers want is diversity among customers and a business that can thrive without the owner. And that's a different beast to create. And that's where you're creating value as opposed to just revenue metrics like number of employees or, or yeah. excuse me, vanity metrics like number of employees or revenue. I have so much I want to comment on there. Going back to the revenue thing, that's not the best metric. In my words, I, I would say because, okay, you made $2 million in revenue or well, how much was profit? That's another thing to consider too. And, you know, Alex Stapleton in Build to Sell high revenue numbers, but the profit, I felt like when I heard the profit numbers, I was like, dang, that's low. And then moving on to headcount, people kind of share that, especially founders. And I've fallen into this trap as well as like a ego flex type thing. 100%. Oh, I have, I have, have 20 people, 30 people, whatever it is. And that's not the best metric either. What I, when people ask me how big my organization is, I'm like, well, you know, Instagram sold for a billion dollars with 13 employees. Like that's not a good metric. Like I don't care about that. I'm not in it to like just get acquire, you know, have a hundred employees. Like that's not what it's about. And then what you mentioned about having customers that come in the door, not because of you, the founder, this is something I wanted to talk about more today that I actually forgot to put in my notes. I'm glad that you're, you've kind of jarred my memory here. A lot of people in my space, I'm in, the, I'm in the digital agency space and I've been in that space for seven years, John. And what I'm seeing more and more of, especially right now on Twitter, it's called Money Twitter. I don't know if you've ever heard of that space, but a lot of digital agency owners there building businesses and bringing business in the door solely based off of their personal brand. Right. They post threads on Twitter, you know, all this content on Twitter. And look, they do well. You know, these there's, you know, a lot of 20 something year olds making 30, 40, 50, hundred thousand dollars per month based off of the business they built on Twitter. The problem with that is it's completely dependent on their personal brand. Client acquisition is completely dependent on that. They're not at all building a valuable business at all whatsoever. I think there's an argument to be made of lifestyle business versus, you know, I'm building a lifestyle business versus like an actual valuable sellable business. You know, there, there's two different ways to do it, you know, and you can have a lifestyle business in addition to a, a sellable business. I, like my friend Andre, he runs a, a mastermind with 369 members in there. Huge company, not a sellable business, but that's not how they're designing it. They don't want it. They wouldn't. It's not something you would sell. Your thoughts. Wow, lots to unpack there. So yeah, yeah I, I agree 100% that a, a business based solely on customers you acquire through Twitter may have less value to an acquirer. It depends really on what you do with those customers, whether there's any value at all. For example, Nick Huber, a sweaty startup, does uh, storage, right? Yes, and, I know him. Yeah. And he, he uses a lot of you know, he, he's obviously been pretty out there publicly about using Twitter as a mechanism mm -hmm. to find investors. And so what he's done is use his personal brand to transfer it or for that value to accrue to a portfolio of 
uh, self-storage properties, which do have value because they have recurring revenue and there's asset. There's an asset there. So he's he's using his personal brand for customer acquisition, but he's then transferring that or or, or accruing that equity to a, a sellable asset. And so that's, I think, a reasonably good strategy. He's if an acquirer looked at the business, they would they would they would have to value the business not on on its growth rate per se, because the growth rate is determined largely by Nick's social media following, which they yeah. would not be able to transfer over. But they would have value in the actual portfolio, the recurring revenue that, uh, sitting underneath that. Where you're not going to get a lot of value from an acquirer and acquirer's eyes is if you are selling some sort of information product, some sort of conference event, mastermind, which is dependent on you to deliver. So in Nick's case, the difference is that the self-storage is not dependent on him to deliver. It, it, it exists uh, unto itself. Whereas if you're you know, building a mastermind, building an event, a newsletter, anything that is heavily dependent on you to kind of show up and deliver the value, that's not really going to be transferable in a traditional sense. There, there are ways you can transfer those businesses, but they usually depend on a fairly significant earnout where yeah. most, if not all of your proceeds are in the future. I interviewed uh, Josh Abramson, the guy who started College Humor, started Vimeo, uh, Busted Tees, and he was offered $9 million for collegehumor.com in his dorm room. He's still at university at the time. Yet when he unpacked the offer, it was $8.8 million in an earnout and two hundred grand in cash up front. So it was largely- wow. It was largely fictitious. It wasn't a real offer. It was much more uh, a- Predatory. uh, (laughs) Much more predatory. Thank you. Good word, Jordan. That's a good word. That's the way those sorts of deals are structured if you are the business, if it depends on you showing up. Yeah. I want to talk more about this. You know, I could talk about this all day, but I want to go back to you here. We we went down a, a rabbit hole. Did you go to college? And so what was it for? Oh man, this is like, I'm 50, almost two years old. So like, this is going back away. So yes, I went to college. I left early. I went for a communications degree. You'll recall my interest in sort of interviewing in mm-hmm. 60 minutes and stuff like that. What I found it was that communications was at the school I went to a hybrid of the film department and the sociology department, and and neither knew anything about communications. It was the worst program delivered by the worst professors mm. I've ever experienced. And so I left early. It was a waste of my time, my parents' money. Yeah. <laughs> it was just a total disaster. So yeah, I went, but I didn't really uh, get much out of it. That's kind of how it goes. For some people and other people get a tremendous amount. I mean, sure. I interviewed Steve Merch, a great entrepreneur, a, a friend, and he he's built a couple of companies. One he sold to Microsoft for about tens and tens and tens and tens of millions of dollars. He went to Harvard undergrad. He got a PhD in computer science from Carnegie Mellon, and I think a Stanford MBA. I mean, he's the most qualified credentialed person I've ever met. And he's an entrepreneur and a very, very successful one. And so mm-hmm. I always, I, I find myself as a knee-jerk reaction, Jordan, kind of shitting on MBA and shitting on business school and say, oh, you don't need that. 
I always go back to Steve and go, actually, there are examples of tremendously successful entrepreneurs who are very well credentialed academically. And so I, right. I have to check myself when I, totally. when I go down that rat hole, that rabbit hole. I got you. Yeah, I'm with you. So you dropped out of college and then what happens after that? I went to work at a radio station and I did promotions and sales and all kinds of stuff. I had an idea for a radio show where I would interview entrepreneurs. Now, again, this goes back to 19, uh, I want to say 93, 94, 95, something like that. So think about this in the context of well before iPhones, well before like podcasts. I mean, this is, this is when you consumed media on radio. And I had this idea for the show about entrepreneurs and I wanted to interview them and ask them sort of if they know then what they know now, what they might they do differently about their, you know, their journey in entrepreneurship. And I pitched this to the company I was working for, which is one of the largest, you know, radio production companies in Canada. And they said, that'll never work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was like the red flag to the bull. I was like, it will work. And I'm going to show you. So that I left the radio station and I, I created that show. It was called today's entrepreneur. It became nationally syndicated in Canada. We were in 22 different radio stations, talk radio. I interviewed a different entrepreneur every day for three years. And I asked mm-hmm. them one simple question, which is the one I just, uh, referenced, you know, if you know then what you know now, mm-hmm. what would you do differently? And it was all just similar to what you're doing today is trying to interview entrepreneurs and find out like, what's the, what's the secret here? Like, how do you go about building a successful company? Yeah. So it was, a, it was, it was a wonderful experience and it was like baptism by fire. It was learning from some of the best entrepreneurs. It's great. Living the dream. Living the dream. Exactly. So then from there, I imagine you become armed with the, the know-how, Gosh, the beginnings. Yeah. Yeah. And then I started just like creating businesses. How old are you at this point? Gosh, I must be 20, mid twenties, 25, 27. Mm -hmm. So I, yeah, I I don't recall specifically, but in, in that range. Um, and so, yeah, so I just got involved in building businesses. I had a, uh, a marketing agency, so similar to the the kind of guy in in built to sell and and yeah. and a lot of your listeners would empathize with that. I had an events business. The radio production business was one that we eventually rolled the the show into. I had a market intelligence business, and 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 that one was an interesting business because we worked with very large enterprise customers, mm-hmm. big banks and phone companies, and helped them understand the SMB market. And then more recently, well, I shouldn't say more recently, I took a break from entrepreneurship in 2008 and uh, we moved to Europe for three years, my family and I, which was really cool. And then I started Value Builder, which is a SaaS product yeah. that I focus on uh, most of my time on now. We also have a, a new SaaS product called VidGuide, which is pretty fun too and taking up a lot of my energy. So, What yeah. was the first business? It wasn't the events business. That sounds like it was number two. What was before that? You know, I, there were a couple that, that ran simultaneously. So the radio mm. production business would have been the first one. And how'd it go? Yeah, good. I mean, uh, again, we we got the largest bank in the country to sponsor the show. And with mm-hmm. radio production, what you come to realize pretty quickly is the sponsor is a big part of the <laughs> of the equation. I mean, this goes back a long time. So it's 
kind of interesting. It's been a while. So those experiences are ones that I learned a little bit from in the, in the radio production space. Yeah, it was how to work with sponsors. It was how to work with you know different stakeholders. We had a syndication company that we used to syndicate the the product. That, you know, so that was that. It's yeah. it just feels so long ago. The experience is so dated that I that I that I I I'm embarrassed. <laughs> not embarrassed. I, I feel like it's not really that relevant to today's world, yeah. just because the whole world has changed obviously so much since then. No, totally. Was the events business the first one that you sold? Yeah, we so we, the events business was one that well we sold the radio production back to the syndication company that was doing it. So that was a the first one and then the events business would have been yeah, it would have been next. And the digital age like the, the, the it wasn't a digital agency, it was a marketing agency no. again, you, if you go back then the the marketing was a different sort of medium. It was not like digital stuff. It was brochures and yeah, the logos and those kinds of things. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, a digital agency yeah. back in the early nineties. I thought it was quite interesting in the, I believe in the book, when you describe towards the end there, what happened with the events business and how you pivoted that, the challenges and the, what is it called? Um, oh yeah, RFPs, right? Request for proposal. Yeah. If you could, I think that's a good nugget to like, a good story to share with people to kind of give them a, a taste of the book, a little bit of a flavor of the book. Because again, built to sell, if you have a business or even thinking about building a business someday, you've got to get that book. If you could share. Yeah, look, I mean, the if you're like the the story in built to sell goes back to experience that I had actually in the market intelligence business, which was that responding to requests for proposal is almost a fool's errand. In the end, yeah, those requests for proposal are designed to really undercut and and grind down the providers. And I can remember in in the market intelligence business we had we worked with phone companies, large you know, phone companies who did a lot of qualitative research focus groups, and they would basically submit a RFP to a bunch of different qualitative research vendors and pick the lowest price one. And I remember doing the quoting for one job it's early in the tenure of this business. And like, I literally went down and looked at like, how much was the space to rent? How much are we going to pay incentives to, you know, get the people to come to the event and, or to the, uh, the focus group and like the, the refreshments and like the margin at the very end of it was so minuscule. It would hardly pay the cost of the moderator, let alone any profit. And I thought this is insane. And we didn't even win that job. And I, like, it was one of those moments for me where I was like, this is a complete waste of time. And it was one of the, the I think one of the, the, the triggering events that made me really think deeply about the business we wanted to be in. It was at the time we were a project-based market intelligence firm, meaning you would, you would hire us for a project. It, it might be a fairly expensive project, maybe fifty, hundred, two hundred thousand dollars, but it was effectively a project that had a start, middle, and end, and then it was over. We'd send the invoice, and it was over, and and that just felt deeply unsatisfying to me personally. I felt like I wasn't building anything. I was on this kind of constant hamster wheel, and again, I was in the case of RFPs being commoditized 
And that's, you know, those experiences and others like it uh, was what really made us change that business model to one where we had syndicated market research, where we had the same product that we offered multiple customers. So instead of doing custom work, we developed a set of syndicated reports on the SMB market, which was the market that we analyzed and covered. And we sold the same report to multiple companies. It's like the world's most expensive subscription. It would cost them like $40,000, $50,000 a year. And we were using a model similar to Bloomberg does today. Or at the time, there were companies like Forrester and Yankee Group that did this sort of syndicated market intelligence. And that change fundamentally shifted that business. It went from you know very, very project-based, deeply dependent on me to one where it was scalable effectively, yeah. where we could we could sell these and and value is being delivered kind yeah. of without us showing up per se to do a specific project. Yeah. In the book you talk about that move to those reports. And then all of a sudden <clears throat> Your uh, account managers, for lack of a better term, they, they want to start customizing mm, yeah, their yeah. reports for their clients. And I hear this, <clears throat> I hear this quite a bit, John, because I'm all about having a set process, right? You just uh, you describe in the book, Built to Sell, the five-step <clears throat> logo design process. And I always say, uh, I would argue that, you know, under that five-step logo design process, there's about 10 sub-deliverables under each step, right? It's probably like a 50-step templated project plan is what we call it, templated project plan. But the pushback that I get sometimes is, well, we don't want to be a McDonald's. We don't want to be a Starbucks. We want to be a Michelin star restaurant. We want to, we don't, templated project plan doesn't apply to us. It's not templated. It's not, it's different every time. We don't, we don't like what you're talking about, Jordan. Your thoughts. Oh my gosh. It's the most common objection you get mm -hmm. from professional services people. And and I would just say that I, I don't think you can rewire the professional services mind, which is why I really encourage people not to hire people in the services industry. So the world's worst thing you can say to me when you're hire, like, like looking for a job at at any of the companies that I've been involved in is, is I work in advertising or I've worked at an advertising agency or I worked at a marketing agency. Because what that screams to me is you have no clue. You like customizing, you love serving clients, you love changing everything for everybody because you think business is a creative expression and it's not. If you want to like draw for a living, go draw. But business is where you actually are supposed to create something that can thrive without you. In my view, that's the definition of being successful. And to do that, you have to have a replicatable process of doing it the same way every time. And as long as you're creating a custom solution, you're, you're building effectively a partnership. And it may not be called a partnership, but it's effectively the senior partners in the company will eventually earn equity or you're going to have to give them equity or they're going to leave because every job is different and it's dependent on the people. And that's why professional services firms, whether it's an architectural firm, law firm, accounting firm, they're all just partnerships because the founders dilute themselves. They lose equity because they're, they rely on people to develop mm -hmm. a custom solution and those people are mobile. Right. And as soon as they have enough customer clout and enough experience and enough credibility, enough recommendations on their LinkedIn profile, yeah. they'll leave or demand equity. 
And until you say, no, this is the way we do it at our agency, we never ever veer from this. And your personal opinion is less important than the process. And that's why I like hiring product people. See, product people, I believe, have a much more difficult job. They don't have the luxury of reinventing every project for every client. They they have to take a product, whether it's a, a hammer, an iPhone, a water bottle, and try to do the mental gymnastics of, of explaining how the prospect can use the product without changing the product. That's difficult. That's way more demanding intellectually. And that's the kind of person I like to hire because I think they're way, way more rigorous, disciplined, and just more intelligent than the guy or gal who worked at name Who's the end to bend over and do anything to close a deal. <laughs> right. And they, they use co- you know, consultative selling and they're like, Oh, we've got to do yeah. solution selling and every client's different. We got to treat like, it's all just this weird, it's this weird ethos that is unique to the professional services world. It creates very unvaluable companies and ones that have a high employee to revenue, like the, you know, the revenue per employee at Apple last time I looked was like 3 million. The revenue per employee at probably Omnicom, the, the giant advertising agencies, is a couple hundred grand, maybe, maybe you'd have to look those numbers up, but it's a fraction of what it is at a Google and Apple, you, know, you name your product company. That's why whenever I'm interviewing somebody and I hear that and they tell me that they worked at a, you know, like a T-Mobile, I'm like, yes, (laughs) like you cannot customize the phone. Right. And it's so funny because that's the example from the book. And after I read the book and I started, I've been, I always interview, I'm always interviewing, I'm always hiring. Like it's all, it's a continual process. Like you, you don't stop. I always, I always talk about building your bench. You've got to have that bench uh, for people to call on. But anyhow, that's a different topic. And I start hearing now that after I read the book years ago, oh, I worked at you know, this phone store or that phone store. So it's actually quite common. The people, at least the people that I talk to, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's straight from the book. <laughs> I need to hire these people <laughs> that worked at the phone store. Now it's not that cut and dry, of course. Sure, uh, sure. You, know, you don't yeah. hear that they worked at, you know, they sold products. Oh, I got to hire them. There's way more to it than that. But to your point, yes, I, I, I like hearing when people sold products and not services because, and this is not the part that I, I haven't thought about this before until you just mentioned it, but yes, more intellectually demanding, harder to do. Yeah. So a couple more questions here, moving actually on to more of a, cause I think we've made a nice transition into the follow-up questions from the book here. You suggest that the best businesses can run without their founders. Of course, that's the whole point of the book. Can you share an anecdote or story from your life before this book that inspired you to think like that? Yeah, it was in a conversation I had with a guy named Perry Mielli back in, I'll call it 2005. I was actually in the pr- process of, of exiting the market intelligence business that I referenced earlier. And Perry's an M&A guy. So he sells companies for a living. And I, and I said to Perry, like, what do you think it's worth? And at the time we were, I don't know, between five and six million in revenue. We were pretty profitable, like 25% profit margins before tax kind of thing. So like, 
pretty good business. And we had great clients. Bank of America was a client. Microsoft was a client. All these giant brands. And, you know, I went into his office sort of rubbing my hands together thinking, okay, well, this is going to be worth a mint, right? I mean, all these beautiful clients, household name, lots of profit, et cetera. And, and uh, he says, well, before I answer the question, let me ask you a couple of questions. I'm like, shoot. And he says, okay, well, like you're in the market research, market intelligence business. Who does the research? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, like I'm, I'd be involved in it, right? Like a, the design of, of a big customer project, I'd be certainly involved in that. And he's like, okay, well, who does the selling? And I'm like, well, it's Bank of America. Like they expect me to show up for the meeting, right? So I'm I'm involved in doing the selling. He says, okay, that's that's great. Listen, John, I I can't sell your company. There's nothing to sell. And he went on to describe what acquirers look for, which is not profit and necessarily a golden customer list. It's a business that can thrive without the owner because they know you're going to leave and they're going to get left holding the bag. And so the only way they're going to do a deal is if the business will thrive without you. And what you've described right now, you're involved in doing the work and the selling is not a business I can sell. And I left that meeting feeling about three feet tall and like I'd been punched in the stomach. It was a really, really difficult thing to hear because, you know, again, I, I was under the illusion that that acquirers care most about profit and customers' client list effectively. And what I heard was that those things are kind of important, but not nearly as important as can the business thrive without you. Yeah. And that's what kicked off a lot of the changes we made. We moved again from the kind of project-based, we were at that point sort of half pregnant. We had a few subscribers to our syndicated product and we had some uh, clients that were still hiring us on on demand, so to speak, for projects. And we went all in on the subscription offering. We turned off the project-based work. We said, we won't do it anymore because again, it was sucking me personally into the work. We hired a whole sales team to do the selling. So I wasn't doing any of the selling anymore. And ultimately, that company was acquired by a publicly traded company. You know them as Gartner Group, big New York Stock Exchange listed market intelligence company. So it sort of had a happy ending, but it was a very, very tumultuous period of time for me just Mm. because I kind of thought I was sitting on this gold mine. And what I came to learn was I wasn't. It's tough to hear. Yeah, totally. Okay. Very much like Alex Stapleton from the Stapleton Agency. <laughs> yeah, like yeah, that sounds I mean, like you. Yeah, you wrote the book about yourself in a way. Yeah, well, Alex Stapleton is not me. It's an amalgam of different experiences. Yeah. I've oh for sure. I've heard from and and heard of. He gets to a point where his business is, does logos. That's and they do marketing. They do all sorts of marketing stuff. Like they do brochures and point purchase and websites. And in the book, he gets to a point where he's just about to, you know, accept an RFP or reply to an RFP from a big sporting goods retailer. And his mentor says, like, you take that job, number one, your margins are going to get ground down. Number two, it's going to make your business even more dependent on you personally. And it kicks off this sort of journey where he starts to realize that he's got to structure it so it's not dependent on him. So yeah, lots of common themes. It was obviously, in my case, a different, a, a totally different industry and so forth. But yeah. yeah, it's one that I think a lot of Services, businesses, again, marketing services, professional services, home services, find themselves in where they are their clients, you know, most important contact in the company. Mm-hmm. And as long as that's the case, it's a problem. You know, it's funny. I interviewed a woman named Jody Cook recently. Have you have you ever had Jody on the show? 
No, no, I haven't she heard would be her. good. She's uh, a UK-based entrepreneur who built a digital agency. Her specialty was social media. At the time, it was Instagram and Facebook, and doing campaigns for clients on those mediums. And at the beginning, she got offered. I think it was. I can't remember exactly, but I think it was five or six times EBITDA for her company. But they wanted to do a 60-40 earnout split. And she's like, I'm not doing an earnout. She's super independent, very strong old woman. And she's like, there's no way. And so she made the decision to make it less about her. And this is a woman who had her name in the company. It was called JC Media for Jody Cook Media. Right. So it was, it was a challenge for her, but yeah. she created standard operating procedures and she created systems and process and made it less about her. She hired a general manager and ultimately sold for a good multiple with 100% cash up front, no, no, clo- no, uh, no earn out. And again, it was a long journey for her, but it was one that... Uh, that, that ended up being fruitful. Yeah. Reminds me of somebody that I work with, a friend of mine. His company name was Tarbell Media. That's his last name. And uh, recently he changed the name to Driven Media. He's like, that, that shit was a freelancer name. I was like, I was like that's right. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny. Names are, are, are problematic. They, they can be problematic if you use your surname in the company name. And to be clear, the market intelligence firm that I had was called Warlow. You couldn't have a worse name if you tried. A, nobody could spell it. B, it's my last name. Mm. And so it was really difficult. And But what I tell people if they have their surname in the company name is it's not impossible to transfer that business. If you think about, there are lots of companies, McKinsey, yes, Johnson & Johnson. There mm. are companies where their founders are in the name. One of the strategies I've seen work really well is to is to productize your service and then start leading with the productized service as opposed to the company name. So like at, at Johnson & Johnson as an example, you have heard of Johnson & Johnson for sure. You may have read some folklore about two brothers 200 years ago starting the company, but you definitely know Band-Aid. Or you know some of their other you know baby oil, some of their other brands are ones that people know because they've led with their brands instead of their company name. Their company name becomes sort of a secondary. Band Aid is a brand. That's their that's their brand. Yeah, they own that. Wow, brand. wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's become part of the lexicon, part of the vocabulary. It's part of the English language now, as mm. opposed to. But it's ultimately their brand. So it's it's if you find yourself with your name in the company name, I think you could rebrand. That's expensive and you can lose a lot of awareness in the marketplace if you do mm-hmm. that. Another option, obviously, is to is to start leaning in on your product names. In our case, we had this thing called the Warlow Subscriber Network, which was subscribers to our market intelligence reports. So we leaned in on WSN, like it was what how we you know, so it became what we were known for as opposed to me personally. Uh, and that was helpful in transitioning away from me. Yeah. Pivoting here, I'm curious what you think about this. I always say that you'll never build a business that works without you if you're communicating with your clients over text and or email. I mean, I work with a lot of agencies, not a lot, but some of them that are just absolutely resistant to using anything like Slack or Microsoft Teams or what have you. 
They insist on texting their team members and their clients. That's how they do business or mm. WhatsApp. And I'm just like, oh no. Like the history of the conversations is important. And when it's in Slack, everyone has visibility into that project's communications uh, or that client's communications all the way from the beginning. Harder to build a business that works without you if you're texting, if you're just texting or call, or um, emailing clients. Agree or disagree? Oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I mean, I mean, yeah, like one point of failure in an email string, even if you could CC people in an email string, but in text, it's literally one point of failure. You get hit by a bus, that entire string of communication one point of failure. is is gone. So that's not a good a- approach. Again, the, the 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 analogy that I've used, and it may it may land on deaf ears for for your listeners. It may resonate. I'll I'll share it, and they can decide. It's you know, for a lot of entrepreneurs, we. Uh, we think of our role as the CEO of our business, the driver. I hear a lot. I'm the driver of my company. I'm the rainmaker for my company. That's another one that that a lot of entrepreneurs feel like they're the ones who win the new clients and they pass them off to their team to kind of manage. And so they're the sort of rainmaker, the front end, of the front, you know, front of the spear, so to speak. And and I think those are all fine analogies. I I prefer the analogy of a parent, and that is once you have kids. You you really start to submerge your ego, or at least I should speak for myself. I found myself feeling less focused on my success personally, mm. and was much more interested in how can I make them, how can I make them successful? How can I turn them into kids who are independent, happy, able to thrive in the world, do something, you know, some make some contribution to the world. And when that's your lens on your company and you're thinking less about winning the next client or landing the next deal and thinking, how do I structure this business? Almost like a parent thinking about their kids. How do I get them to be independent, to be able to go off to college and live independently, to get their first job and not need me to get it for them? And that's a very different way to think about your company. And if that's your lens then you make all kinds of different decisions than you would if you're thinking of your job as being the rainmaker. If you're thinking of yourself as a parent, you want to invest in standard operating procedures so people know what to do when you're not around. You want to make sure you've got salespeople so that you're not the one that customers want to see and, and hear from. You've got processes for collecting payments and dealing with banking. You're just going about the whole business in a totally different way. And, and I think ultimately that is the true definition of entrepreneurship. I think there's lots of examples of very successful people. Joe Rogan comes to mind, uh, Oprah Winfrey, who have incredibly lucrative jobs. But I wouldn't consider them really amazing entrepreneurs because those jobs die when they stop doing what they're doing. Yet I think when you when you think about people who build businesses that will then go on to survive them, even individually. Like if you think about Steve Jobs, he's sadly passed away, mm-hmm. yet Apple is the most valuable company in the world or one of the most valuable companies. To me, he's given birth to a business, right? That will be here long after he's gone. I think that is the ultimate expression of entrepreneurship is to give birth and parent a company to being an independent entity. Wow. And and that's a different job than got to hit the next revenue milestone or the next EBITDA milestone or win the next client. 
Wow. Give birth to a business. That could be the title of the podcast. <laughs> and parent it. It's not easy to yeah. get a kid through 18 years of mm -hmm. life to the point where they're, you know, able to go off in the world and, and, uh, and find, you know, plot their own course. That, that takes a lot of, a lot of work as a parent. I can say it firsthand. <laughs> I cannot. Not yet. But goes without saying, if you are the rainmaker, that's no bueno. Don't want that. If your employees have to constantly come to you to figure out how to do things, ask questions, uh, that's also no bueno. You don't want them to be dependent on you past a certain point. Think about your the company, like personify the company as a human being, like the as opposed to in any one individual. I, I would just encourage you to think about the company in the early days as an infant that needs you to do everything for it. But if you you know eventually you want it, you want to get it out of yes. diapers and able to kind of at least kind of walk a little bit on their own, and and then eventually to becoming a full fledged adult. It's the company that I would encourage you to personify. Mm. Just a tactical little thing that that uh, Jody Cook did. I referenced her a couple of times. Mm -hmm. She was the one who ran the, the social media agency in the UK. When employees came to her and she was going through this process of like, what do I need to systematize? What do I need to create standard operating procedures around? She just kept an eight and a half, 11 piece of paper on her desk. And when anybody asked her questions, she just write it down. And at the end of the day, she knew that those were the things that she needed to create standard operating procedures around. And it was a very crude sort of analog way to do it, but I think it was brilliant in the sense that those are the questions that you're getting asked. That's, in this case, you're the bottleneck when you're having to be the person answering those questions. So create a process that basically answers it for them. Yes. And uh, I think that was a great yeah. little a little hack that Jody used that I think uh, mm. a lot of folks could, uh, could benefit. Yeah. I talk about a, a fully functional learning management system, John, as SOPs that teach team members how to do things step-by-step, -step. trainings that teach team members how to think and then a frequently asked question forum, a log of all FAQs that have ever been questions that have ever been asked, that guides people all along the way. You know, things that maybe uh, you know, little things that maybe trainings or SOPs don't cover. That's great. That's great. Yeah, that's great. You know, I mentioned VidGuide in the beginning. We just launched VidGuide and it's standard operating procedures uh, for companies. It's a tool that enables you to create standard operating procedures with video. And the reason we created it is we found that most entrepreneurs know they need standard operating procedures. Very, very often, however, they get frustrated when employees don't follow them. Mm -hmm. And when you talk to entrepreneurs and ask them, like, why don't they follow your SOPs? What you find is that in some cases, the SOP is in the, in the head of the owner and they think mm -hmm. they've explained it to people, but they haven't really. Or the, the employee uh, is you know, struggling to find the SOP when they need it. It's uh, deep buried in some Google Drive somewhere where they can't find it. Or it's written in such a way that it's difficult for the employee to decipher on the spot. They're serving a customer and they're trying to figure out what to do. And they're like reading this like dense nine-page SOP. And so yeah. that's why we created VidGuide. It basically is video-based standard operating procedures. Mm. It's, it's proving to be pretty, uh, mm. pretty cool for a lot of, uh, in particular, service businesses that are uh, yeah. needing to train their employees. 
how complimentary. Yeah, to, it's, uh, it's your whole great. your whole thing. Yeah, I'll have to check yeah, that out. Because, vidguy.com? Yeah, vidguide.com. Yeah, vidguide.com. And be sure you guide or guy? Guide. Guide, like a like a Sherpa guide. Vidguide. Got it. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So it's um it's it's you've seen the stats on video, right? Like if we're going to fix something in our homes or we want to figure out how to do something, more people are now inclined to just search on YouTube for a video on how to do something than to try to download a user manual. So it's video native, which is hence the name vid guide. And it's effectively enables you to, you to tag a video to a piece of software. Like you've got Employees using G4, Google, Google Analytics 4, for, for example, I think it's called GA4. You can basically tag a video to GA4, teaching people how to search GA4, for example, or you can tag a video to QuickBooks. It's, mm-hmm. been, uh, it's been a pretty cool little, uh, little product. Fitguide.com. I will check it out right after this or after my next meeting. Two more quick questions since sure. we are coming up on time there. What would be like the one thing, John? The one change that you would encourage business owners to make if you could only tell them to make one today? Yeah, it would go back to something I shared earlier, which is chase value, not revenue. I think that is the the most problematic approach to building a business as we think of revenue as our uh our most important metric. And maybe it's because it's objective. Maybe it's because we know when we win, but the value of your company is going to lead you to make some fairly significant changes. I I talk about this thing called the freedom point as well, Mm -hmm. which I think is a really important thing to keep in mind. And it ties into this idea of value. And that is that when the sale of your company would fund the lifestyle that you aspire to have for the rest of your life, uh, you've reached the freedom point. And it's at that point where you have a decision to make, right? Because for most of us as entrepreneurs, we start companies for freedom. Like that's what our highest value is. And when you have built a company that could fund the lifestyle that you envision for the rest of your life, you've reached uh, that point. We call it the freedom point. And it's at that point, I think it's worth asking yourself, do I need to sell? Because if you hold and choose not to sell, even though you're past the freedom point, it's like Warren Buffett said, the definition of insanity is risking what you want for something you don't. And if you have a business that by selling it, you could create the freedom you aspire to have and you don't sell it, you're effectively like the blackjack player at the poker table who is all in, right? In the sense that you're risking that freedom for something you may not want, another zero in your bank account, for example. I, I interviewed Rand Fishkin. Have you had Rand on the show? Yes, yes. Okay. Probably three or four years ago. What a gracious guest. What a great, great entrepreneur, an amazing story. If you haven't picked mm-hmm. up Lost and Founder, his book. Yes, it's, it's good a, book. It's a great book, must read. Uh, Rand described his experience well. When I interviewed him on Built to Sell Radio, he got to, I think, $5 million in revenue. I uh, got an offer from HubSpot, which at the time was $25 million of cash in HubSpot stock. He turned it down. 
and said, oh, I want to build it. And, and a whole series of kind of domino effects happened. He went through a period of depression. They brought in venture capitalists. They diversified the business outside of a core competency. Long story short, Rand ended up with nothing to show for years of building his business. And I tell that story to entrepreneurs because he had the bird in the hand. He had a $25 million offer. Could he have gotten more one day? Sure, probably. But that was enough money. And I interviewed him, when I interviewed him, I asked him, Rand, what would that offer be worth today based on the appreciation of HubSpot stock? And he said it would be close to $200 million. Oh my gosh. And, and instead, he, he, uh, he was left largely with nothing from that company. He's gone on to have uh, oh, yeah. great success in other areas. But it's a, uh, a cautionary tale, I think, for folks who reach the freedom point where the sale of their agency or their marketing business or their company would create the lifestyle and fund the lifestyle they aspire to have. You've reached the freedom point. The question is, why continue at that point? Like, mm. why are you continuing to own this company? And I think it's worth asking that question. Yeah. John, I could go, I, we could literally do a podcast for three hours. <laughs> I would, and I would really enjoy it. There's so many questions uh, about this book, specifically as it pertains to digital agencies too. There's so much more we can talk about. But for now, we will put a, a pin here before I ask my final question. Built to Sell, the book, Built to Sell Radio, vidguide.com. And uh, yeah, John Warlow, two R's, two L's. Check him out. Cool guy. Thanks, Ron. My last question is what it is like, what's one or two or three even, however many you got in you off the top of your head, golden rules of life and or business, whatever you got. Wow. These are heavy questions, man. I don't know if I'm, <laughs> I'm qualified to answer them. Golden rules. Hmm, try to think of something that's not super Pollyanna and overused. Uh, I feel that. I try to avoid stuff like that too. I think my biggest fear is like being the same mm. as everybody else and, and saying, th I'm very contrarian. So <laughs> I feel that. I get you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can go back to things that that I talk to my kids about it. I, I think ultimately one of the one of the things that I, I think we need to to be mindful of is that if you have the skills to be entrepreneurial, and I don't necessarily mean an entrepreneur. I mean you could be an entrepreneurial person inside a company, but if you have the skills to be an entrepreneur, to, to, to conceive of an idea, to sell it to others, to execute it, et cetera, you have the ultimate parachute, the ultimate kind of get out of jail free card. You have the ability to do whatever you want in life. And I think that's a very small percentage of the population. If you think about most people, firefighters, police officers, nurses, doctors, academics, they live within a system, right? And their world is very, very, very structured. And they have to placate to the powers that be in that system. And I think if you are able to overcome that and, and be independent, you could choose to ply your wares or, or take your services and work for a company. But if you have the ability to start something and grow it and, and ultimately exit it, you have the ultimate tool set. And I think that's a very, 
that's very hard to take away. AI is not going to take that away. You know, ChatGPT is not going to take that away. That is a very rare skill set. And I think that's important. It dovetails to a second sort of kind of core idea that I, I think is the real benefit of entrepreneurship, which is what I refer to as life in 10-year chunks. And what I mean by that is that, you know, for a lot of people, they get on the career ladder and they can't get off. Like if you become a lawyer, you have to stay on that career ladder until you choose to retire or you will be run over, right? Because there's a very specific trajectory. And if you choose to pause or take a break or hit a plateau, you will never go beyond that because there's a Christmas tree hierarchy in a law firm. It's similar if you go to work for Microsoft, you go to work for, you know, in, a, in a giant corporation, you're on the career ladder and it's very difficult to hit pause. Now, those companies and those organizations have been lots of benefits, right? They've got mm-hmm. healthcare and, and all sorts of benefits. But I believe the one tremendous benefit of entrepreneurship is to live your life in 10-year chunks, is to build something, grow it, sell it, and then take a giant break. It could be a year, it could be two years, and you travel, experiment, do something completely outside of your realm. And if you think about your competency or your core skill set as the ability to be an entrepreneur, you never lose your space on the career ladder. You just start exactly where you left off and build another company. And that is a luxury most people in the world do not have. And it is a a tremendous luxury if you actually lean into it. Again, I referenced in my case, my family and I, we moved to Europe for three years. I had young kids. I spent three years learning French and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And it was amazing. Time of my life could never have happened had I been an employee of a big company. Just wouldn't have happened. Wouldn't have been possible. So I think those two things is what I would leave your listeners with is the power of entrepreneurship and uh, life in 10-year chunks. John, you're the man. Thanks so much. Thank you. There you have it, my friends. This has been another episode of Building Freedom. My only hope for this podcast, my aim is that this inspires you to build a freer, fuller life. One where you're not enslaved buy a business, whether that be your business or any other business, whether you're a business owner or self-employed. The aim of this show is to help you build a freer, fuller life. And there are many ways to do that. And that's what we showcase on this show each week. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, be well.